I invite you to be turning to 1 Peter chapter 1. We will pick up in verse 17 here in just a little bit. It's good to see everybody this morning, and I'm glad you were able to come out and to, to be with us. So far in 1 Peter, we've been looking at the idea of living for God in an ungodly world. And so far we've established that throughout history, God's people have primarily been on the outside looking in, haven't they? They've lived in exile. They've lived differently. They've been called to walk differently, dress differently, act differently, talk differently than the society around about them. And we need to understand that as God's people, we are exiles. As God's people, we are pilgrims. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. We don't need to get our tent pegs nailed and dug too deeply into this earth. Too many of us as Christians have taken root in this world. And when we do that, we lose track and lose the ability to understand we're just passing through. God is taking us somewhere. If we are God's people, if we are God's children, if we are Christ followers, if we are Christians, God's taking us home. This world's not home. We're going home. We're on that journey. God's taking us there. He's taking us up to our inheritance. But until then, there's a way we're supposed to live. Until then, there's a way that we're supposed to act. Until then, there's a way upon which we should carry ourselves. And that's found in 1 Peter 1, verse 15, summarized, when it says there, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. We are called to live holy. The word holy means separate. The word holy means sinless. The word holy means pure. God is holy. He is in the process. The Holy Spirit living in us is in in the process of making us more holy, making us more Christ-like. That's where we've been called. That's what we've been called to. And that involves several areas of our lives. We talked last week. Being and walking holy involves our minds. We have to get our mind right. The New King James and the King James tells us to gird up the loins of our mind, prepare our minds for action, prepare our minds to get busy, make preparation, think ahead. We also need to think clearly, soberly, Peter tells us. That's the idea of balanced, clear thinking. We don't need to have muddy thinking. We need to get the pigs out of the mud. Remember we said that last week. Get the pigs out of the creek so the water can clear up. We need to get the mud out of our minds so we can think clearly, think spiritually, think holy thoughts. We also need to keep the future on the front burner. Keep our hope, it says uh, to us, to keep our hope in front of us. Know where we're headed. Know where we're going. Don't let get so caught up in the present that we forget where we're going. Have you ever, the older I get, the more I can relate to this. Have you ever t- taken off going somewhere and you forget where you're going? You know, you, maybe it's a room in the house. You think, why have I, Why did I come in this room? Or I remember one time traveling with my grandfather. We were going to the store and all of a sudden he just had a funny look on his face and <clears throat> I said, Paul, what's the matter? He said, where are we going? And uh, that it happens to us. But as Christians, that happens to us as well. We get so wrapped up in today 
that we forget where we're headed. We forget where we're going. If we're going to live a holy life, it involves our minds. It also involves our actions. Paul tells us, in, or Peter tells us rather, uh, to in the, here in verse 15, to be holy. To live holy lives, to act holy, to live like God. God's holy, we need to be holy. We need to think holy thoughts, we need to live holy. And live the way we're supposed to live. Paul warns us not to go backwards, uh, verse 14. Don't go back like we used to live. Don't go back to our old life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he lists a whole list of sins. And he says, such were some of you. That's the way we were before we were saved. That's the way we were before God gave us a new mind, a new heart, a new will, a new want to. Peter says if we're going to live holy, you can't go backwards. If we're going to go holy, we have to stay in the Spirit. Stay walking in the Spirit with the one that's living in us. But it also, and this is where we'll pick up this morning, it involves our manner. Notice verse 17. 1 Peter 1 verse 17. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. It involves our manner. We are to travel. We are to journey. We are to sojourn in the fear of the Lord. We're to walk in the fear of the Lord. We're to walk. We're to live. We're to operate. We're to function. We're to journey in the fear of the Lord. That word fear means awe and respect. And that's what it means by definition. But it, I think it also means we ought to be just a little bit afraid of God. Now, I don't think God wants us walking around going, Oh my goodness, God's going to hit me with lightning. But let me try to explain what I'm talking about. I love my grandmother with every fiber of my being. My grandmother was a little short, five-foot-two woman who was part Indian. She looked like it, and she acted like it. As a matter of fact, my dad's nickname for my grandmother was Geronimo. And he would ask us sometimes, how's Geronimo? Was she on the warpath? Because let me tell you, when our Geronimo got on the warpath, you did not want to be in the way. I love my grandmother. I wish I could see her today. I wish I could throw my arms around her and hug her. But can I tell you this? I was a little bit afraid of her too. Because I knew what my grandmother would do. I was 13 years old. I remember this just like it was yesterday. I've shared this with you before. I had a smart aleck comment. And I sat next to her at the dinner table. And the next thing I knew, I was laying backwards looking up at the light because she had taken her hand and gone like that. And said, boy, don't you talk crazy like that. And so I learned then if I had something smart to say, one of two things, either say it away from her or if I said it to stay away for about a week. But I was a little afraid of my grandmother because of what she might do. Can I tell you that God wants us to love him? Can I tell you that God wants us to respect him? But we also need to remember that he's God. He's, he is the creator of the universe. God created lightning. 
and he knows how to use it. Remember all those folks in the Old Testament that God used to smite? He, he smote an awful lot of folks. You say, well, that's the Old Testament. Can I remind you of a New Testament story in Acts chapter 5? Where Ananias and Sapphira, they were two Christian folks that were in the church of Jerusalem. They sold some property. And we're not given the numbers, but I'm going to explain it in our our world. Let, let's say they sold their property for $100,000. Well, they came to the apostles and said, we sold our property for $50,000. Here's the proceeds. Here's all of it. Well, they kept $50,000. Now, let me say there was nothing wrong for them keeping that $50,000. It was their, uh, their property and their money. What they should have said is, we have sold our property and here's the portion that we're giving to God. That would have been fine. But they wanted the apostles and all the church to think that they had sold all this property. And they wanted the attaboys and the girls. And you know what God did to Ananias? Struck him dead. Instantly struck him dead. Two or three hours later, his wife Sapphira came in looking for Ananias. She knew he'd gone to church. So she comes in there asking Peter, have you seen Ananias? And he doesn't answer that question. He says, Sapphira, did you and your husband sell this property for $50,000? And she said, yes, that's what we did. And Peter said to her, why is it that you and your husband have conspired together to lie to the Holy Spirit? And she was struck dead. And there's an interesting verse in verse 11, Acts 5.11. It says, and great fear came upon the church. You know what? I bet it did. How would we as a church feel if, since God knows everything we do and everything we did, what if lightning came through the building? And struck one of us. And the Holy Spirit laid it on our heart that that lightning came from God because that person had sinned. You think we'd be a little more fearful of God? You think we'd walk a little more holy? You think we would walk a little more the way God wants us to walk? We probably would all be going, thank goodness he didn't choose me, right? <laughs> Can I tell you that God is gracious? Can I tell you that God loves you, that God loves me, that God loves us? But God has commanded us to be holy, and that's not a suggestion. It's a commandment. We are called to live differently. We are called to walk differently. And what so many Christians think is, is, well, on Saturday night I'll live this way, act this way, or whatever. And on Sunday morning, I'll just ask God to forgive me and everything will be all right. What if you don't get a chance to do that? What if God says, I've had enough and I'm taking you home? God's going to take us home eventually. But you think God won't take his people out early? Read 1 Corinthians. There were people there who were disrespecting the Lord's Supper. They were disrespecting their way of life. They weren't living the way God wanted them to live. 
And Paul tells them there, the reason why some of you are sick and in your deathbed is because you're not living the way you ought to live. God will take you home early. We are to walk in the fear of God. Well, why do we fear God? First of all, we're commanded to, right? That's what this verse says. But secondly, notice what's coming. Verse 17 again, if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work. There's a coming judgment. We should fear God because he commands us to, but also because of God's coming judgment. We are all going to be judged. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says it's appointed unto man, and by man he means mankind and womankind, humans. It's appointed unto humans first to die, and after that, the judgment. Now you say, well, Brother Andy, I thought, our, I thought once I was saved, the salvation question had been settled. It has been. There are several different judgments mentioned in the Bible. And they can basically be lumped into two. One is going to happen at end times. The sheep and the goats, remember that? When the sheep are going to be separated from the goats, the book of Revelation calls it the white throne judgment. That's, that's the end judgment at the final time where sinners and unbelievers are going to be cast into the lake of fire. But there's also a judgment that Christians are going to face. It's known as the beam of seat judgment. Uh, 1 Corinthians talks about this. That is where, as Christians, we're going to stand before Christ and give an account of what we did with our life after we became Christians. That's why it says we'll be judged according to our works. We're not saved or lost according to our works. We're saved or lost on whether or not we trusted Jesus as our Savior. Right? Everybody with me with that? What we as Christians are going to be judged for is, what did you do with the fact that I saved you? God's going to say those gifts, those spiritual gifts I gave you, those talents I gave you. Remember the parable of the talents? That parable is designed for Christians. That parable is taught for Christians. Some Christians have ten talents. Some have five. Some have one. Some use their talents. Some don't. And when the master comes back, that's Jesus. He's going to judge us on how we used our talents. And we're not going to lose our salvation. If we've truly been saved, we'll be saved. But the question is, what kind of rewards will we get to heaven when we get to heaven? I don't know about y'all, but uh, I don't want to stand before Jesus and have Jesus tell me, Andy, I don't have anything for you. You're in heaven, but I don't I don't have anything for you. I won't have crowns to take off my head that Jesus gives me at judgment to take off and present to him at, when, I, when we worship God. You see, we need to walk in the fear of the Lord because he commanded us to, and that ought to be enough. As parents and as grandparents, have you ever had your kids say, they say, can I do something? And you say, no. And they say, why? And you give the great philosophical answer, because I said so. That's not always the best way to answer. But 
Should that settle the issue? Now, that's the only way, understand, that's the only way kids learn. So when kids say why, take the time to explain to them why, because that's the way you teach them lessons. But there does come a time where that, that may be the answer you give, because I said so. Why do we live in fear of God? Because God told us to. And that, that's plain. That, the things are written in this word so that we'll understand what's right and what's wrong, what's sin, what's not sin. God said so. But more than that, God is coming in judgment. But can I say this? Well, well let me also say as well with this judgment. Notice that he says that it's according to each one's work. If God's judgment is impartial, if, uh, let's say when I'm standing before God, God's not going to say, now Andy, you're a pretty good guy, but you're a speeder. And you're going to have to give an account for the fact you didn't keep the laws of the land like you should have. He's not going to then come to Mike and say, now, Mike, you're a speeder, but I like you better than I do Andy. So I'm going to let you get by with it. Scripture tells us that in judgment, God is impartial. When God judges the lost, it's simply going to be, did you trust Jesus or not? Did you believe or not? Are you a believer or an unbeliever? That, that's, that's the salvation question. But this other question comes down to our deeds and what we do and what we do with what God has given us. And God's going to be impartial with all that. He's going to judge the facts. You young folks don't remember Dragnet, but some of you, y'all my age and older do, when Joe Friday would say, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. That's what God's going to, that's the way God's going to judge, judgment, just the facts. He's going to be impartial. Hebrews 10.31 tells us it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Our God's alive. Our God is watching. Our God is looking at what it is we are doing. But you know what? The fear of God alone won't keep us holy. Those folks living in all of God, doing all the spiting in the Old Testament, they couldn't keep the law. They didn't keep the law. It didn't keep them, keep them holy. It also involves our motives. Look at verse 18, beginning. Go back to 17 for context. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers. Look at verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Why should we live holy? It involves our motives. The reason why is because we realize how precious our redemption is. We realize how much our redemption costs. Notice what Peter does in this paragraph. 
Look at verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. Compare that to verse 4. We have an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away. Our redemption and our inheritance were both purchased by being something more precious than gold, something more precious than silver, something more precious than stuff. Peter is going to make some comparisons here. Peter does, I kind of got to the end of this paragraph, and I said, I saw what you did, Peter, and then I'll show you more of that here in just a little bit. But we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, the precious blood of the Lamb of God. Why is the blood of Jesus precious? First of all, it's precious because nothing else has the power that the blood of Jesus Christ has. There is nothing, we, we sang about it at Calvary. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There's nothing more powerful than the blood of Jesus. Let me tell you what the blood of Jesus can do. The blood of Jesus can not only save us, the blood of Jesus can also change us. The blood of Jesus can transform us. The blood of Jesus can take an alcoholic's bottle and make him set it down. The blood of Jesus can take a drug addict's needle and make him set it down. The blood of Jesus can take a sex addict, illicit sex, and make him give that up. The blood of Jesus can change us. Because it doesn't just modify our behavior, it changes our heart. It gives us a different want to, it gives us a different will. The blood of Jesus is precious because nothing else has that power. But the blood of Jesus is also precious because it's the very blood of God. Do we understand that our intellect, no matter how smart we are, no matter how intellectual we get, our intellect can't save us. Our intellect can't get us from God. As a matter of fact, if we're not careful, our intellect will take us away from God. Our intellect can't save us. Our stuff can't save us. We might have the biggest house in Fairview with the biggest farm or the biggest yard, the biggest pond, the nicest cow, the nicest uh, boats, the nicest cars, the nicest clothes. God doesn't care about that. That's not going to get us into heaven. Our talent. Some of the most talented people in the world are going to be lost. I've met some folks in my life that can talk. You ever met folks with the gift of gab? Ann and I, or Marie and I ran into, Ann and I did too. We ran into several different sales folks that could talk. You ever met them? You might be an Eskimo and they'll tell you you need a Frigidaire. And they'll paint the biggest, prettiest what if. And you think, you know, I better buy this because I, I might need this. What they are, slick talkers. Can I tell you the slickest talker in the world? The best salesman with all the talent in the world will never talk himself into the pearly gates. 
God won't save us. Our will won't save us. We can't say, I'm going to be good enough, I'm going to work hard enough, I'm going to earn my way to heaven. You can't do it. Because we still mess up, don't we? I told you last week that I would like to be like the guy in front of men's health. I like to have that body, but I also like banana pudding. And I can do pretty good for a day or two, but if I'm not careful, that banana pudding, especially if we go to plantation, it's homemade banana pudding. That's a whole different. That's a whole different temptation than the box banana pudding. Some of y'all feel that way about turnip greens. Y'all just crazy about that. But whatever your issue is, we deal with it, right? We, we can't not give in sometimes. Well, it's even more so spiritually. We can do all right for a day or two, but that old flesh comes calling. So no matter how good we do, y'all, it's not good enough. God in heaven. Understand this. God in heaven became a human to purchase us from the enslavement of sin. We were slaves to sin. You say, I'm not a slave to anybody. I'm my own person. You don't realize it, but you're a slave to sin if you're not a Christian. If you're not on God's team, you're on the other team, and that's Satan. There's no neutral. Nobody gets to play Switzerland in the in the civil in the, in the spiritual war. You're either for God or against God. You're either in, working in God's kingdom or you're working in Satan's kingdom. Our God became human to purchase us to purchase us from our enslavement to sin. Satan had us in his grasp. God himself took the form of a human. He got on a cross. He spilt his blood so we can hand that blood to Satan and say, I am buying my children back. That's the ransom price. Somebody today kidnap someone, they'll say, I want a million dollars as ransom. Satan says, I have the world in sin. It's going to take a spotless sacrifice to buy them back. Man couldn't make that ransom price. You think you don't have a million dollars, you also don't have enough. You're not spotless. And you're not without blemish, neither am I. God had to come and spill his blood Y'all, we were bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It's the most precious blood ever spilt because only that blood can save us. And the blood of Jesus not only saves us, it changes us. It not only changes our behavior, it changes our destiny. It gives us our freedom from sin, but it also gives us our future with God. And I talked about my grandmama at the beginning of this lesson. I said I was a little bit afraid of her. And I always was just a little bit. 
But you know what I learned as I got older? I realized that I had an emotion for my grandmother more than that was greater than that fear. I loved my grandmother. And I didn't want to disappoint her. I got to the point where I was bigger than her. I was still afraid of her, but I was bigger than her. I was grown. She couldn't hurt me. But I didn't want to disappoint her. I wanted to do right because I didn't want to disappoint her. When we realize how precious the blood of Jesus is, when we realize that Jesus died for me, he died for you, when we realize that and we take it personally, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that I might not perish but have everlasting life. So that you, you put your name there. Make it personal. God loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus spilt his blood for you. We ought to fear God. Well, boy, we ought to love him. He gave himself for us. We ought to love him enough that we don't want to disappoint him. We need to learn to say no to temptation. No to sin because I'd say I can't do that because it would disappoint God. My mama turned 80 years old yesterday. We had her birthday. We kind of had a little surprise party for her. And driving home and I was thinking about this lesson. Can I tell you that there's nothing in this world that I would do to hurt my mother or to disappoint my mother on purpose. We ought to feel that way about God. I don't want to do anything to hurt this church. I don't want to do anything to hurt Marie. I don't want to do anything to hurt my family. Not because of what they could do to me to punish me, but because I love them. Because our relationship is precious. Well, how do we exercise this holiness in our daily walk as we wrap everything up? How do we tie this together and how do we exercise this in our daily walk? When we look at this whole paragraph, remember we said verses 3 to 12 is a, a complete sentence. Verses 13 through 21 just continue that thought. And all of it together is the thought about holy living. And how do we live holy? We live holy, verse 13, by looking forward to God's grace. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes back, whether he calls me to him or I live to when he comes back, when I'm reunited with Jesus in body and spirit, I look forward to that day and the grace that he's going to give us, that inheritance that we're going to have. We need to be able to look forward to this, to look forward to that. We also need to learn to look upward at God's requirement of holiness. Look upward at God's requirement of holiness, verses 16 and 17, or 15 and 16 rather. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. 
We have to realize, y'all, this just dawned on me while I was getting this lesson together. <clears throat> when I was growing up, my mother especially would say, I'd do something I ought not do. I'd say something or do something that was not right. And my mother would say, you better not let God see you do that. How many things in your life, they may be secret things that only you know. And you say, boy, I, don't, I hope God doesn't see that. Or we, or we think we're going to slip something by God. There's a time or two growing up I, I slipped into the house. One time I thought I'd made it. You know, I, I, I pulled into the driveway and, and to, to get into where we parked, it went downhill a little bit. So I shut the motor off and let it coast into my spot. And uh, I was, I, I walked really, really quiet. And when I had my key out, when I, I opened it, there wasn't any lights in the house, I thought, Oh, good, they're gone to bed. I was about an hour past curfew. I thought, they're, they're, they're in bed. I put my key. It's amazing you tried to be quiet how loud everything is. But I slipped my key in the door, and I turned it. I opened the door and stepped inside and closed the door. And I thought, well, I made it. I didn't hear. My, my parents slept right off of that door where we came in the back door and I didn't hear Andy Plank I thought I've made it I turned around and there my dad was sitting in the chair I didn't make it I didn't slip past it y'all that sin you think only you know God knows let me tell you why God knows you ready don't think, don't do this because God might see you. He will see. Here's how I know he sees. Because as Christians, guess who's living in us? Holy Spirit. Guess who is with us everywhere we go 24-7? God. God knows. We need to look inward. We need to look upward. Well, we need to look forward to grace. We need to look upward at God's holiness. He's with us. He's already declared us holy. That's what he, remember we were learned in our Romans class. Reckon ourselves holy. Reckon ourselves pure. Consider yourself pure. We need to live that way. Look forward to God's grace that's coming. Look upward at God's requirement of holiness. When we sin and fall short of God's holiness, let's quit to be repentant and confess. If you haven't been paying attention, can I ask you to come back to me for a second? I have something important to say. The road to repentance is a difficult road. But it's the only road that's going to get you where you want to go. There are easier roads to take. They're easier for the moment. But they take you in the wrong direction. And they're going to take you or you will end up at the wrong destination and you're going to lose everything that's important. God told us to be holy for a reason. Look forward to God's grace. Look upward 
to God's holiness. Look inward, inside us, to God's redemption from futility. Our world is full of people living a futile life. Now they're doing it 90 miles an hour. My brother had a guinea pig named Jimmy Squash. And Jimmy Squash loved to run in his little wheel. He'd go. He'd get that wheel going. To and he'd like to do it at 2 o'clock in the morning. And every time the wheel would turn, it would squeak. So it's going squeak, 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 squeak. My mom and daddy made John get rid of Jimmy Squash. Because it's keeping us all up. We couldn't sleep. But you know what I thought of that old Jimmy Squash? He was running hard. But he wasn't getting anywhere. How many of us are running life at 90 miles an hour not getting anywhere? The blood of Jesus Christ frees us from a life of futility. It gives us a purpose. It gives us, gets us out of the rat race. So many people go back. They give up. They quit. They say, this is a, living a Christian life, living a holy life, living a godly life is difficult. Any preacher that tells you it's not difficult, run. Because he's not telling you the truth. It's hard, but it's worth it. So many people go back. Don't go back where you were. Stay with Jesus. We need to look forward to God's grace, upward at God's requirement of holiness, inward <coughs> to God's redemption from futility. And then we need to look backward at the resurrection of Jesus. Look at verses 20 and 21. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. God is giving us a living hope. Notice about this living hope. There in verse 20, it was foreordained. God's plan of redemption through Jesus Christ was in place before the foundation of the world. Before God ever said, let there be light and created the world, he knew man was going to fall. He knew that man needed a Savior. And he had already said in his mind that it was going to be Jesus Christ. It's foreordained by God. Verse 20 tells us it was manifest or shown in these last times for you. At just the right time and place. When God the Father, when his plan, when it was that day that he had planned, the Father said, Son, it's time. And God entered. The one who created time entered time. The one who created space entered space. The one who created history. Did you realize history was created for man? God lives in eternity. The one who created history and time and place <coughs> stepped into history and time and space. And of all things, he became a human. 
He became a human like us. He lived a perfect life so that he could die and so that he could buy us back. Verses 10 and 11. That salvation that was talked about by the prophets. It was foreordained by God. It was shown to us and it was verified by the resurrection. Verse 21. The resurrection is the litmus test of all of this. Can I tell you if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, that all the don't believe any of it. If the resurrection's not true, don't believe the rest of it, because the rest of it's not true either. But if it's true that a dead man on Easter Sunday got out of the grave alive, and still living today, if that's true, and I believe it is, I believe I'd show proof that it is, if that's true, the rest of it's true. I don't have a problem with Jesus being born of a virgin and healing the blind and healing the sick and doing all forgiving sins. That's easy if you believe a dead man got up and walked, right? The resurrection's the linchpin. So as I wrap up and tile this together, our salvation is the work of the Trinity. Watch what Peter does. Our salvation has to do with the foreknowledge of God. Verse 2 and verse 20. It has to do with the sanctification of the Spirit. Verse 2, verses 15 and 16. It has to do with the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. Verses 2 compared to verses 18 and 19. This paragraph begins and ends with hope. Hope in God. Hope in Christ. I've got a question for you this morning. Where does your hope rest? For me, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. When Christ shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Y'all, the only hope I've got when I die and stand before the throne is my faith in Jesus Christ. I don't have my righteousness, I have his. Y'all seen that get out of jail free card when you play Monopoly? You know, you kind of want to hang on to that. Christ's righteousness is our get out of jail free card. It's not my righteousness that's going to save me. God looks at me and sees Jesus and says, you're mine. Are you his this morning? You belong to him.